Um, we got our work cut out for us this morning because we're going to try to get back into 1 Kings and we're in chapter 19. We can blame winter camp and sixth graders or whatever we want, but we've been out of this book for a while and we've got to get back into it. 1 Kings chapter 19, that's where we left off and that's where we need to start this morning. If you're there, we'll read verse 1 together. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Let's just stop right there for a second. How can we get back into 1 Kings? What has happened? Well, a lot, obviously, because we're in chapter 19 and there's only a few chapters left in this book But let me try to sum it up. Here's what 1 Kings has been about. David, King David, is old. And in those opening chapters, he's ready to go and be with God, to to die and pass on the kingdom that was his to his son Solomon. And David calls Solomon to remain faithful as the new king. And he commands him to remain faithful to the covenant and to God. And Solomon gets this incredible opportunity. Uh, He not only gets to be king, but it's this Aladdin moment in chapter 3, and better because this one is real. God asks Solomon to make a wish, and Solomon asks God, not for power and not for money, not to be taller or handsome or have better hair. He asks God for wisdom. He wants more wisdom to be the kind of king that Israel needs. And God loved that request, and so he granted it. He fulfills Solomon's wish, and he gets to be the wisest person ever. And that's not it. Solomon also gets to not only demonstrate that wisdom, but he gets to fulfill one of the desires of his Father David, he gets to build the temple for God, the place where God's people could actually gather for worship, but also to make sacrifices for their sin. And he does that in chapter six. And the detail of the temple is a little bit overwhelming, but it's meant to be amazing and remind us that God is glorious and specific. But this Disney story that we're sort of reading as we come into chapter 11 comes to an end. The, the happy sort of fairy tale moment comes to a screeching halt. Solomon turns from God in chapter 11. His heart turned to foreign gods, turned away from God to the gods of the people that lived around them. And his wife responsible for turning his heart away from God, the Wives that God, by the way, warned Solomon not to take. And because of Solomon's foolish sin, the kingdom now will no longer be his. It'll be taken from him. And we'll see here in a second that it's actually split into two. After his death in chapter 11, the kingdom is fractured into two kingdoms, chapter 12. From this point forward in 1 Kings, the scene sours really quickly. It's really sad and it's sort of difficult to read as these two kingdoms, Israel in the north made up of 10 tribes and Judah in the south made up of the remaining two tribes. 
For chapter after chapter, the author bounces back and forth between Israel and Judah, uh, talking about how those kings were actually not the kind of king that the people needed. Those kings, just like Solomon, also followed after false gods. Uh, They traded the real God for the gods of the people. And chapter 17, as we get there, it seems that God has finally had enough. He's had enough of their apostasy, enough of their choosing a different God over him. And in chapter 17, we're introduced to Elijah. This is God's prophet, God's man who God uses to put an end to this nonsense that the gods of the land are somehow competing with the real God. To put an end to the nonsense that Baal, the main one, the main false god that the people embraced, that he is not real. And God wants to prove that Baal's not real, and he wants to prove that he alone is real. So chapter 17, God announces through Elijah that there's going to be a drought, no rain, no more food. That's a big deal because of what the people believed about Baal, why they worshiped Baal in the first place. They believed Baal was responsible for the storms and the rain. They worshiped him because they believed he was in charge of that, that he was the one who was in control of, you know, the rain and the crops. He's credited with the one bringing grain and the oils and who could revive the dead and bring life and heal the sick. And God says, I'm going to shut this down hard because Baal isn't the one who does that. I do that. So God declares there's not going to be any rain. And again, that's a huge problem for these Baal worshipers. And the famine is severe. Chapter 18, verse 2 says it was really bad, but God's going to send rain again. And before he does, he declares through Elijah to King Ahab that this famine will end, but it's not because of Baal. The rain will come again, but it's not because Baal's regained his strength. This is God who's going to allow the rains to fall once more because God alone is in charge of creation. God's in charge of the rains, not this false God, Baal. And so how will the people know? How will they be able to tell that this is God and not Baal? How will they know that it is God and that he's real and that Baal is a phony? Who's the true God? Well, chapter 18, the one right before our chapter, God answers that question. He removes all doubt that he is real. He removes all doubt that Baal is nothing but a joke. Uh, Mount Carmel is where this sort of God contest takes place between God and Baal, although not much of a contest. God wins in overwhelming fashion. God defeats Baal on Baal's territory, verse 20 of chapter 18, Mount Carmel, that's Baal's mountain, home court advantage for him. That didn't matter to God at all. And Baal had 450 prophets, verse 22. God just has Elijah there. God proves he's real by working through the impossible. Elijah has the altar, which God was supposed to consume with fire. He has it doused in water. 
And anybody with a, you know, common sense is like, what are you doing, Elijah? It's, you're only making this harder for God. Well, that's the point. He wants it to be impossible so that when God does send fire and that altar does ignite with flame, it'll be clear. This has nothing to do with Elijah or any man. This has everything to do with God. Only the real God can do something like that. Verse 38 of chapter 18, the fire of the Lord did fall and it did consume that burnt offering and it did consume the wood and the stones and the dust, it says, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Elijah didn't have to do what the prophets of Baal tried to do. He didn't have to dance all day for God. He didn't have to cry out. He, he didn't have to cut himself or do anything like those prophets of Baal did. He didn't have to manipulate God in any way because God didn't need Elijah to do anything. God was going to prove that he alone is God. And look at verse 39 of chapter 18. It says, when all the people saw it, that big fireball from heaven and do what it did, it says they fell on their faces and said, The Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook uh, Kishon and he slaughtered them there. And then verse 45, God did what he said he would do. It says a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So Baal proven to be a phony both by fire and by rain. Baal proven not to be in control of either one and God proven beyond all doubt that he was the real God, an incredible sign. Two signs, actually. So back to our text in chapter 19, verse 1. What did Ahab, who is king of Israel, the worst king that Israel's had to date, by the way, what does he say to his bride Jezebel, who hates God and hates God's prophets? He told Jezebel all that. He told Jezebel all that had just happened. Fire from heaven, it it fell, and Elijah's God is real. And Elijah, he rallied the people and all of our prophets, all of the false prophets of Baal, they're all dead. They're all killed. That's what's happened. And now in our text this morning, that's equally challenging and helpful. I hope this text will make you think about how you respond to God. We're going to see some different response responses to God, some different sort of, I think, ways of of looking at how God has revealed himself. We've talked in the last few weeks about how to know what's true, how to respond to the truth that we hear about God, and how to make sure it aligns with God's word. We've also talked about our heart and the condition of our heart and how that might keep us from receiving that truth. That's very, very important. In our text this morning, some receive truth, some reject truth. But a great text this morning to make us think about how we respond to the truth that God is real, how we respond to him, that he is the one and true God. 
God will remind us this morning that we don't need huge signs anymore. We don't need fire from heaven to know that he's real because we have his word. And that is more than enough, more than sufficient. We're going to be reminded this morning that even if we had signs like that, it's no guarantee that that would help anyone at all. No guarantee that it would convince anyone to believe. We don't need signs because we have God's word. And that's a good big idea for us this morning. We don't need signs to prove that God is real. God's word is sufficient for us to know him. Sufficient for us to know that God is real. Like I said, uh, a long text. We're going to try to get through 18 verses this morning, but one that I think will be really helpful. Again, Ahab, verse 1, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying this, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In case you're confused, that's a death threat. The first response to God proving that he's real. Let's say this. We'll talk about Jezebel here for a little bit. We'll call it unaffected by truth. Uh, unaffected by truth. Jezebel committing her life to divine judgment if she can't put Elijah in the ground. She'll willingly take whatever punishment her gods will dish out if she can't end Elijah's life. So clearly she didn't care about what God had done, how he had proved that he was God. Jezebel is unchanged. She could care less. I mean, you have to imagine Ahab being genuinely impacted by what he saw. He was there. He saw the fire. And you can imagine him explaining that scene to his wife. Honey, there's no explanation for it. We even doused it with water multiple times. And yet that fire fell from heaven. And trust me, it was hot. I wasn't even that close to it. And it like, look, my eyebrows were gone. I think that's what he maybe have said. think maybe even too, it's likely that he was expecting her to have a different response. I I think the reader, even though we read this quickly, I think we even anticipate that her response might be a little bit different. Like, that is incredible. I mean, it stinks that all our prophets are dead, but God God proved it. God proved that he's real. Wow, it's amazing. But that's not what happens at all. I can imagine that she looked at him with a cold look, maybe even rolling her eyes a little bit or a lot. <sighs> Husband, <laughs> you fool. Who cares? Uh, that, that means nothing to me. Why would that matter that God sent fire? Jezebel is unmoved by the truth, by the signs, by the testimony of her own husband. She could care less. She remained blind to the truth despite God's clear display, convincing display, overwhelming display that he is real and that he alone is God. And she remains blind to it. It's 2 Corinthians 4 4. I think we talked about that in the last few weeks. The God of this world is just keeping her blind 
to the reality of God, to the glory of who God is and the glory of the truth of his gospel. She doesn't see it. And her reaction also, I think, reminds us that salvation is God's work. Psalm chapter 3, verse 8 says that. Other texts that come to mind, Ephesians 2, it's real. She is just dead in her sin, and she will remain dead until God makes her alive again by faith. Her response reminds us that without God, no matter how much truth is presented, no matter how hot that fireball is, there is no spiritual life, there is no faith, there is no new creation without God's gracious gift to give life. Her attitude says, I could care less about God, about what he's done, about what he might have said And if your attitude matches that attitude this morning, it's not that you're a wicked queen like Jezebel or some awful villain. Truth is, you and her both need the same thing. You both need God to give you light and life because you both love the darkness of your sin. You you both love that sin so much. You both love your life the way that it is, and you don't want anything to change, no matter how convincing God's argument might become. No matter how obvious it is to you that his word is true, and his gospel is real, and his son did come to die 2,000 years ago, and he did lay down his life for your sin, no matter how clear that becomes to you, you simply remain unaffected. Even if someone were to perfectly argue and present those truths from Scripture to you, you don't care because you don't, want to care. You're dead in your sin and you don't want anything to change. Unmoved by truth. That's the first response. And it's sad. Second response, let's keep looking to God proving that he is real and the one true God. Let's say this intense concern for God's purposes. Verse three, then he, Elijah, was afraid And he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. He asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank, and he lay down again. Small detail here, but sometimes it's the little things that make all the difference. Verse 3, Elijah, it's said, he was afraid. Most manuscripts um, do actually have the verb for fear there. Uh, Others in your Bible may note this. Some of our older copies of this text actually have a different word, different verb. It's the one to see. And 
you guys know me. Normally, I don't drag you through the mire of Hebrew and verbs because it's nerdy and boring. But I do think this one is actually really important. Fear or see. Although those two words are very different in English. (laughs) They're actually really similar in the language that the Old Testament was written in. In fact, hard to tell the difference between the two, especially if your handwriting's not super clear. And, And listen, I know popular opinion on this is definitely that Elijah was afraid. Almost every Bible says that. And Most Bibles don't even put that little notation in there anymore that he was so scared out of his mind. And it makes sense with the context. Jezebel just threatens his life. And a few verses later, he's asking to die. So fear certainly makes sense. But I want you to understand that so does the word see. How would that make sense? What did Elijah see? What did he understand? Well, Ahab told Jezebel everything, and get this, her death threat came anyway. What did Elijah see? Well, simply this, nothing was going to change. Even after all that, all that proof, there's no repentance. Even after that amazing display from God, fire falling from heaven, still no turning back to God. Even after her husband's testimony, there's no great revival. The queen and the king who are still in charge, they're still committed to Baal, still committed to following after a false God and to leading the people away From God, God's still going to be rejected even after all that truth and proof. Verse 4, you may think his death desire is a little bit much here, that he's just being dramatic. But it's not the first time we've seen a prophet react that way. Remember Jonah? Jonah is so similar to Elijah and yet so different. Jonah brought a great sign to the people of Nineveh. Stunk like a fish as he was in that great fish for three days. And he brought that message of repentance to those people and they received it. And in Jonah chapter four, after the people do turn away from their sin, Jonah has a huge pity party. He didn't want God to do that. He didn't want to bring that message because he didn't want those people to repent. And so he says to God, kill me. Elijah here so badly wants it to happen, though. He's the opposite of Jonah. He so badly wants Israel to forget Baal. So badly wants God's people to come back to God so badly wanting there to be that revival and that turning again to to the real God. And yet he knows by Jezebel's response that that's not going to be the case. One commentator says it this way, Elijah wants to die because he was broken. He doesn't want her to get the credit for his death. So he leaves and he goes to the middle of nowhere and he asks God to take his life Why? So that no one would know and no one would ever give the credit to her and especially to Baal. 
seems likely to me, but this, of course, isn't what happens. God doesn't take his life. God treats both Jonah and Elijah the same. Instead of granting that request, God sustains his life. Angelic help is on the way. Cakes and jars of water. I wonder what it tasted like. I think something like Little Debbie. I just think that's what it is. It's delicious. That word cake and the jar, it's meant to make us think of how God sustained the widow back in chapter 17, how there was that miraculous provision by God. She was able to produce those cakes day after day after day. Why? Because God kept that jar of oil full and and those words are on purpose It's just reminding us that God has this and he's providing for Elijah physically. That has not stopped, but that isn't all. Look at verse seven. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went into the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights all the way to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. He said, go, this is God, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said the same thing. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. After a divine protein bar and energy drink, Elijah's ready to go where God directs him. And it's actually not just an angel. It says the angel of the Lord, by the way. When that shows up in the Old Testament, it's good for us to think of of Jesus before he came to earth. So this is God himself giving Elijah this plan, verse 7, all the way to Horeb in verse 8. That's about 200 miles away from Jezebel. And then Horeb, where he finds this cave. That's back on God's turf. That's God's mountain. That's where Moses met with God back in Exodus, an important place. And now verse nine, the question that will be repeated, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this is why that little verb mattered, especially here so much. It wasn't that he was afraid. It's that he understood When we understand that and think of it that way, God questioning Elijah isn't a rebuke. It's not a, what are you doing here? Not at all. God isn't mad at Elijah's fear. He isn't mad because he shouldn't be there. Don't forget, this was God's purpose to bring him there. God directed him there. Why would God do that? 
because he's inviting Elijah to come and speak and to what I believe is to vent and to get it out and to unburden his heart. Come to me, God says. Come to where I am. Come to Mount Horeb. Let's talk. What are you doing here, Elijah? You could say, why else would you be here, Elijah? I invited you here. I wanted you to be here. I led you here. Now relieve that burdened heart of yours and pour out your sorrow before the one who can actually help. And verse 10 and 14 are the same response from Elijah. He's upset, but not because he's afraid. He's upset for God's sake. He's upset over God's altars and the covenant and the prophets and the people. And Elijah is upset at the response of what's happened. How could this people not be changed? God, I don't get it. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. That sign was amazing. And then the rain, it's all incredible. Verse 10 and 14, Elijah's answer here, it's just the truth. It's how he feels and he's distraught for God's sake and he's undone because of such horrible idolatry. It's just an opportunity here for Elijah to say what he needs to say, to bring that accusation against God's people. He gets to spill his guts. And you know what happens when you do that? You feel better. You're too old and cool to admit it now, but when you were younger, you would run to your mom and dad and you would just get it all out. And they would pat your back and they would probably laugh with each other as you were crying because it was so cute. But you felt better when it was over. The reality is that's what God is doing here for Elijah and that's what God does for his people. You're meant to go to God and do the same thing. Go to him and he invites you to come just like Elijah. Come to him and come to his throne and unburden your heart. Get it all out. Verse 11 and 12. Earth, wind, and fire. Just a band that Dr. Scott likes. He's not even here, so we can talk about him. I'm kidding. I'm sure he doesn't like that band. What does all that stuff mean? The fire and the wind and the earthquakes. What, What is all this? I believe that God is trying to show Elijah and us that he is most present, not in the supernatural signs, but in his word. Here's why I say that. It's clear he's not in the wind, although there are great and strong winds and the wind is shattering the rocks. But it says God's not in it. And then earthquakes, the same. The Lord is not in it. And then a fire. We're familiar with that from chapter before, but there again it says the Lord's not in it. But then what? This voice, this low whisper follows. It implies that God is present. God will speak because God is here to be gentle. And if his prophet is going to have dealings with him, God must be that way. If if Elijah's ever going to be able to get anything out of dealing with this God who is so different and powerful and glorious, God has to come in a whisper. God has to restrain himself. 
I don't know if you caught it, but even in a whisper, it's still a lot. Elijah protects his face. Must be some whisper. Makes us think of Moses in Exodus 34 after spending some time with God. His face glowed. And even then, that was a restricted presence of God. Imagine if God didn't do that. We can't handle his full glory and even remotely handle his full presence. He would crush us in the wind like rocks. They're no match for him. He would burst us by his power and shake us like an earthquake and consume us like a fire. But he doesn't come to us like that. His fire can eat water, don't forget. Yet here is God revealing himself so that Elijah can withstand it. God reveals himself to us so that we can understand him. And how has he done that? Through his word. That's how God does it. We don't need to look for God in the spectacular because we honestly couldn't survive it. We, we would never learn anything from God that way. God could communicate that way to us, but it would not be very helpful for you and I. God doesn't need to talk to us in tornadoes because he's said everything he needs us to know right here in Scripture. This is how God wants us to learn about him. And a word for Elijah was all Elijah needed. And it's really, truly all we need as well. So what do I want to say? Well, let's say this. There's not going to be a lot of Mount Carmel's in your life. Not going to be a lot of fireballs falling from heaven. God doesn't communicate to you that way. And that doesn't mean that God isn't there or that God's not at work, but there is a truth that needs to be captured by our hearts. God is quietly working through his word because that's the best way for us. That's the best way for us to handle it. Just like Jesus says in Matthew 12, we don't need a sign. Stop looking for signs. We have all that we need. Jesus came and he proclaimed the gospel and he performed miracles, proving his authority. And he laid down his life and he was resurrected, proving that the father's plan was finished. It's all done. It's all we need to know. Salvation is possible and forgiveness. It is feasible. You don't need an earthquake to make that clear. We don't need fireballs from heaven to consume altars to help us understand that. We need to consume the living word of God to know that it's true. You want to see amazing things? Read this. David says the very same thing, and he wrote in Psalm 119, 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. This is where the amazement is. It's right here. This is what we're looking for. God's word is all we need, sufficient to know, and the best way for us to communicate with him. One last response quickly. to God's proof. We'll just say this, number three, God's point of view remains the same. God's point of view remains the same. Verse 15, Lord said to him, to Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, 
you should anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you should anoint to be king over Israel. Two new kings. Then he says, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Two new kings, one new prophet. And listen, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that's not kissed him. What is this? This is God's reminder to Elijah. I know exactly what I'm doing. No one's getting away with anything. This is God's form of judgment. Those two kings and this new prophet, which we're going to learn more about, they're going to act as God's instruments of judgment. Relax, Elijah. God's completely in control. These instruments of judgment, there's going to be a remnant that God says, I'm going to keep faithful. 7,000, you're not alone. This rejection isn't going to go unpunished. People are going to be judged. God's justice is still perfect and it's still intact. And God's point of view unchanged, reminding Elijah, I still am in control. A great text with a great message and really a great reminder for us that God's word is sufficient. It's better than any sign that God could send and through his word, he exposes hearts like Jezebel's. Through his word, he reminds us that we should have a little more concern for his purposes, and his plan of redemption. Through his word, he reminds us to come to him, and he reminds us that he can comfort us like no one else because he reminds us that he's still very much in control. Father God, thank you for this morning, for a great text with some powerful truth. We are thankful and we are grateful Lord, for how your word has worked in this church, Lord, as we'll celebrate this morning, 55 years of our pastor's ministry. And God, what a, what a testimony to the faithfulness of our pastor to not only know your word and live your word, Father, but help so many to, to know it and follow it as well. God, I pray these truths would be impactful for us this morning as we think about how you have proven with so much clarity that you are real and your word is true and we need the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would help these young people to be serious about their relationship with you. Lord, to take it seriously and to genuinely consider how they respond to your truth. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us and communicating to us in the best way because this is the way that we can understand you. And I pray that you would save many. In Christ's name, amen.